What's good, secular fam? Today's conversation is entitled Religiosity and the Black Family, an American Crisis. I'm your host, Robert of Affinis Humanity. Today's special guest is Dr. Ali, clinical psychologist and host of Discovery Plus and own network series, Like Mother, Like Daughter. In today's episode, Dr. Ali and I will discuss the psychological effects Christianity bestows on the black family dynamic. It's not a discussion for the faint of heart. However, the truth, at times, can be challenging to hear. And all that we do, to be human, is enough. Like share your exposure, like your personal exposure, because I don't think a lot of people know your your background with regards to religion. So can you give us a little history about that? Were you reared in a very high controlling religious family or a particular type of religion? Kind of tell us all about that. Y'all gonna get me in trouble today. My mother <laughs> gonna see this and she's gonna be like, Allison, how are you talking about our family like that? Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> no. I grew up very Christian, very conservative. My family is Seventh Day Adventist. And I am fourth generation Seventh Day Adventist on both sides of my family. Because for some reason, that's a big fucking deal to the Adventist is to know like how many generations in you are. And I am, oh, she was Kojic. You were Kojic. Listen, okay, we got some Kojics in the house. But yeah, it's like, so Adventist on both sides. Four generations. My grandfather is a pastor, a chaplain in the military, like high ranking military official. Like we are called Adventist royalty, a very well known, well standing Adventist family. And now I'm a heathen. <laughs> so, yeah, so I grew up, you know, going to Christian schools my entire life. I went to Christian kindergarten, Christian elementary, junior high, but I was in the Friends system and they are Quaker. So I was in the Quaker system uh, in school when I was younger. And then I went to a Seventh-day Adventist high school. I went to a Seventh-day Adventist college, Oakwood University, which is an HBCU and Seventh-day Adventist. Wait, 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 wait. There are HBCUs and Seventh-day Adventist colleges? So just one. Solamente. Just one. Only one. Only no. one. And... um. And so Oakwood University is in Huntsville, Alabama. And basically, if you black and you Adventist, you go there or you know someone who goes there. It is a small school, but it is like the center of black Adventism. So went there, married my husband, met him there, but we didn't date for a long time after. And he was Adventist and he is now, we call ourselves uh, Badventists or Sadventists. <laughs> I like that. Bad Ventus. <laughs> yeah. And um and I went to get my PhD even at a seventh day Adventist school, Loma Linda University. And um and now I am Buddhist. I've been Buddhist for almost like maybe 13 years. Oh wow. Mm -hmm. Oh wow. And and what what attracted you? What what uh what aspects of Buddhism attracted you uh to its philosophy? So many. When, when it really when it got started was I was working at Cedar Sinai. I was training in psychology there, doing my um, my internship, and we were learning dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a therapeutic intervention created by Marshall Lanahan. 
And basically, she's a great lady, but she basically did what a lot of people do, which is they like go to like an Eastern country and they like connect with something and they're like, oh, I want to take this home and use it in my theoretical orientation. And so she used a lot of Buddhism in DBT as I was noticing how as I was learning it, it was really helping me to understand my emotions better and to understand how to interact with other people better. And I was like, hmm, this is great. And then I was watching my clients that were doing it like really get better fast. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, DBT, DBT is really it. And then when I realized that it was based on Buddhism, I was like, oh, because I've always been a person, I like to distill things down to the origin. I like to, I like to start with like the the, mm. the, the the starting point of something. I don't necessarily need like the Eckhart Tolle of everything or like the new age right. spiritualism. I want to go to the, who did they learn from? And who did that person learn from? And who did that person learn from? I want to learn from the original. So I was like, you know, Siddhartha Buddha, let's check it out. And, um, Okay, okay, okay. And yeah. so I got into Buddhism that way. And then I had a friend that was Buddhist. He's a Nichiren Buddhist, which is in here in, um, in LA. There's like a, a center for Nichiren Buddhism. And I am a Zen Buddhist. So I, I didn't go Nichiren. They're great. They're fabulous. But there's like a whole amazing facility here on Fairfax where a lot of people go and a lot of people are Buddhist there. And so I didn't do Nichiren, but I did uh, Zen. So I had some friends that were Buddhist too. So I was like, we in this. And ultimately, I actually think Buddhism, and, and y'all could challenge me on this, it's very black to me. It's very based on, to me, it's very based on self-sufficiency. It's based on in, um, absorbing deep knowledge. It's based on, like, not individualism, right? I think Christianity has more of an individualistic perspective, but mm -hmm. Buddhism is collective, right? It's about supporting others. It's about supporting family. Like, there's a whole group of people, bodhisattvas, that travel the world and or travel mm -hmm. through areas and make no money and do nothing to sustain themselves. But the people give them food. The people give them money. The people give them shelter at the behest and the kindness of other people. And so I just think it's such a beautifully collective religion. I think it's a religion that really encourages you to learn as much about yourself as possible to exist in the present as much as possible. And I felt like the fundamental difference between my experience with Christianity and my experience with Buddhism was Buddhism was in Christianity was out. Christianity was about giving your worries to God, giving your cares to God. Mm. If something was bothering you, you push it away and then you forget it. But with Buddhism, there was no one to push it to. So you had to just sit with it and learn to understand it and figure out your body and how do you deal with problems and how do you actually solve them instead of just kind of like giving them away. So I liked it. Huh. So, so it's more about like they instilled like self-sufficiency. 100%. And um, I love Cyclonus's um, comment. She said it came out of comedic science. See, and that's what I'm saying. It's so black. I felt the blackness in it. Yes. But based on what you just mm -hmm. said, I had a moment. Um, I'm scared of flying. I've actually kind of worked my way through that, but I was really scared of flying. And I had a moment, I was on a flight um, and there was all this turbulence and I was freaking out. And I was like, oh my God. And then I was like, okay, Jesus Christ, please have me father come. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not Christian anymore. I was like, I don't oh, have wow. anybody to pray to. I don't get to imagine hand, God's hands holding the airplane up as I'm flying through the air. I, I, I just, it's me. And I just had to sit. So I actually sat there and I investigated my fear. And I, mm. I felt my fear from the top of my head down my body. And I realized that my, my arms go numb when I get scared a little bit. And I felt like I had mm -hmm. to go to the bathroom. So I just sat with my fear. And I realized that at that point in time, there was nothing I could do. There was no control that I could exert. And that really, I was experiencing a fear of not being able, like a fear of dying. But a fear of dying for me was a fear of not being able to do what I was here to do. 
to not not so much like the the fear of like what happens when you die and everything but that I have so much more to do and I was gonna be missing out on so much and I I, I hadn't reached any of my goals and and so that helped me to refocus to say mm -hmm. I have I have to start accomplishing the things that I'm here to do so that was my my moment of awareness so instead of just saying God's got me now I can focus on my movie I like really sat there and I had to understand something deeper about myself and why I was afraid of dying on that plane during that turbulence oh wow wow I I, I like that mm. I like I like that I like the self-sufficiency too <laughs> I like you know there, there's a saying in Buddhism as well it says uh if you ever see the Buddha on the side of the road kill him because that's not the Buddha that's a fraudulent Buddha you are the Buddha right there is nothing exterior outside of yourself you are the Buddha you are, quote unquote, a God, not yeah. anything outside, exterior, out of yourself. So, I mean, Buddhism is actually atheistic in nature. I know, I know you have like theistic Buddhism, but then you have the philosophical side of Buddhism yeah. as well. And the traditional Buddhism is really based on, is atheistic, mm -hmm. actually, because there's no supernatural type of elements involved no. in that. You and know? you know what I tell my mom? I say it's non-theist. It's it's non, there just isn't a deity. Because people will say, well, you worship Buddha and that's a false idol. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I may have a Buddha in my house. Right? Ah! <laughs> but nobody, you don't worship Buddha. That's like worshiping your, ba your favorite college professor. You don't like pray to them. You're like, yo, that motherfucker's smart. Like he, he knows some shit. Oh my God, right. what he says makes sense. You know, it's a, it's a whole different energy. But I think that when you come from a perspective of worship with a worship mindset, this idea that you have to kind of take in holistically submitting totally to this cosmic power, it's really hard to understand that a person can have a religion, right? Like the, a religion mm -hmm. that is not surrounded around a total subjugation to a deity. Whereas with Buddhism, like you were saying, there is no deity per se and there's obviously many different versions of buddhism and different denominations within it and different cultures surrounding it so i'm speaking very generally um about the very western california version of buddhism that i practice um i must acknowledge but yeah i look at it as definitely being atheistic or non-theistic if you chose to have a a particular deity that you that you worshipped i don't think i would see that as a problem you know um i think you you can um I go back and forth with God sometimes. Sometimes I, I, I kind of, it's like God, universe, celestial spirit. Like it's kind of the whole thing for me sometimes when I'm really in the mood. So. Hmm. Okay. And, and I want to have, uh, I want to ask you a question regarding your family. So um, is this a, was a seventh day Adventist, was this a generational aspect? Like was your grandparents also seventh day Adventist and it just went on generationally? Oh, yeah. I'm fourth generation. So it's me, mom, Ooh. grandparents, great grandparents on both sides. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. OK. Mm -hmm. okay. So, so, that, so that explains it. There's a lot of people I'm letting down. <laughs> but they, they got to be proud of. They got to be proud of you, though. That's it. Are we still freezing, y'all? No. No? OK. Nope. Nope, um, not at all. Yeah, but they got to be proud of you, though. I mean, look no. what all oh, that no, no, you've no, accomplished. No, no. no, they are not. They're proud of certain things that I do in my life, but my my spirituality is definitely a challenge for my family. Um, my mom, less so. My parents are a little bit more liberal when it comes to this. My mom was a little upset in the beginning. She was very upset. She actually screamed audibly, ah! 
and was like, I sent you to all this Christian school for you to just become a Buddhist. And I was like, yeah, that's what you did. Yeah. She's like, I wasted all that money. I was like, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Whoa. So it's, it's just all about the belief system, regardless of you becoming a clinical psychologist, psychologist regarding, you know, regardless of you helping people uh, get through uh, tumultuous times in their life. It's just I think more cool the weight is on. Yeah. But just think, cool, but just cool. I think they're okay with it. Like they like it, but like mm -hmm. um, my, my dad's family is much more conservative than my mom's family. And, oh, thank you so much, um, Cyclonus. My, my, um, the roses, yes. The, <laughs> I really, I feel like I might be freezing over here or something. I don't know what's going on. But anyways, I'm not, I don't see Yeah, but I see, yeah, I see, I see you fine. Like you're, okay. everything is cool on my end, y'all. But my, my dad's family is a little bit more conservative and, um, I definitely believe that they want to bring me to heaven. They, um, <laughs> mm. they, they definitely, uh. I'm not going to get too personal with what the family is going with, with what uh, the conversation is going on in the family group chat right now, but um, they're very spiritual. <laughs> and one thing about Adventism, which I think makes us a little unique. Oh, there's a few things that make Adventists unique, but one is the Advent and Adventism has to do with the second coming of Christ. Seventh-day Adventists are mm -hmm. doomsday people and they have a very strong connection to the end of the world and they are always waiting and ready for the end of time. And they believe that every day is the end of time. They are always preparing and they are always very hyper-focused on the world ending. And so that's a very stressful way to grow up. I don't think, now that I've been out of it for so long, I think I can actually see how um, stressful it is to perpetually believe that um, everything is ending and that we have to hurry up because the time of trouble is coming. Christians are going to have to head for the hills. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be murdered. What are you going to do when they come to shoot you in the face? Mm -hmm. If you don't say yes to Christ, you know, um, so it's not quite the evangelical, like everyone's going to just disappear and go to heaven kind of stuff. But it's more like you're going to be tortured on this planet and have to run to the mm -hmm. hills and then no one will die for a thousand years. And the thousand years war is going to go on where the demons are running around and you're going to have to, if you're the 144,000 that are left, it's like this whole very scary thing. You got that too, girl. Is that what you got too? Okay. Wait, is this a, you're a guy? You're a guy. Is that what you got too, bro? Like, wow. That, that's, that's hard to, that's hard to live. You know, it kind of almost reminds me of a quote uh, by um, Anais uh, Neen, Anais Neen, when she said, um, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it takes more energy to stay in the bud than it does to blossom. Mm -hmm. Right. It takes more energy to be somebody else and to live a life that appeases theological interpretation, doomsday presentations, than it is to just be free. It's it's it takes so less energy just to be free, but it's kind of like a it's kind of like a mind job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, like how? Wow. Because like the budding of the plant is the the path of least resistance. It takes more energy to not grow. It takes more energy to stay an infant when everything around you wants to work for your benefit, everything around you wants to infuse you with knowledge, mm. everything around you wants you to grow and flourish and move into the positive, into these directions you need to go in. But, and, and that's actually how I was feeling in the church was I would tell my mom, like I would cry to her after church on Sabbath. Cause we also go to church Saturday. So sunset Friday to sunset Saturday was the Sabbath. Oh, 
And so, um, yeah, you didn't do anything. You couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't shop. You couldn't have fun. You couldn't do anything. Wow. Watch TV, none of it. And um, but I would tell my mom, I would be like, I feel so bad. I'm like, I have to go to church and I have to shut my brain off. I was like, because oh. if I use any critical thinking, none of it makes sense to me. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have faith? Like, so it took me so much energy to stay there, to stay infantile. But the minute that I really left and, and fully allowed myself to kind of like shed the guilt and the worry of, of being like, you know, cause it was like just a lot of um, restrictions. I feel like I just flourished so fast, so quickly, all of this knowledge and information just came flooding in for me. And that was such a big deal. Wow. Yeah, mm, people glad glad you're glad you're free. Glad you're on the other side. Oh my goodness. Um wow. So I this is something I've been I've been dying. I've been dying to ask you, especially okay. in front of our viewers, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. So me and Dr. Ali, we were discussing like a couple weeks ago, we were on the phone and Dr. Ali said something to me that has taken up space in my head, and I think it's going to be permanent there. Dr. Ali, you said to me on the phone, I'm too black to be Christian. What do you mean when you say, I'm too black to be Christian? Basically, Christianity, come on, was given <laughs> to us. In an attempt, I got some roses for that. Thank y'all. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Like, I mean, we know history, right? We understand that mm -hmm. missionaries come before the warriors come. Missionaries come before they colonize. And, and, and I'll, you know, white people. Okay. I have so many things I'm going to say. Let me organize myself. What have white people given us in mass? from white people to black people that has ever been for our benefit. Ooh. I will, I will wait everything that they have given us in mass. I'm not going to say individual white people. This is not about each individual. Obviously there's white people who are amazing, wonderful, glorious, beautiful humans. But in general, in 1619, what the hell have they given us that actually benefited us? There's no logical part of my brain that will allow me to believe that white Christians of the time were interested in actually giving salvation to black slaves. They were interested in creating pliable, forgiving, submissive servants that would work for free and would not kill them in their fucking sleep. And that's what they created. Mm. Through force, through violence, through abuse, they created it. And so I get from a lot of black folks, they'll say, but Christianity exists in, in, in Africa. There's Christianity there pre-colonialization, right? Because we obviously have a lot of um, colonized Christianity in Africa today. And so we really can't talk about that because again, they obviously gave that Christianity so they could get land, oil, gold, people, herbs, spices, all the shit they wanted. They send in the missionaries to soften everybody up, to give everyone food, and then to you know, take their religion, religion, and then they come in with the with the guns. But Coptic Christianity is different. If you want to worship Coptic Christianity, which we see in like Eritrea, Ethiopia, Eastern Africa, it's not necessarily the same exact religion. It's a little different. So I'm just, I just, I just feel like I can't quiet my blackness in order to sit back. Thank you so much, King. Um, I cannot quiet my blackness 
in order to accept this message also centering whiteness with every single step because i don't care some people i don't care what anybody says people try to say well jesus isn't white to me bullshit absolute crap every single image of jesus that we have seen growing up in our childhoods was white Jesus. I understand there's a few black Jesuses with little tiny afros. Those are, they've sure. been sprinkled around. There's also a Jesus with dreadlocks that has been sprinkled around the hood. Yes, this is true, but it is not the version of Christianity, the version of Jesus that has been largely promoted. Whenever a, a, a man is walking down the street with long blonde hair and blue eyes and a beard, they say, you look just like Jesus. They don't say that to the bra with the locks. They don't say it. Nobody says it. And and I and it so it centers whiteness. So it has us all worshiping and bowing down and praying for our salvation to a, our Creator God, our Savior God, who is white. And I, I'm. It's just how I feel you. I feel you, <laughs> Chick, uh, uh, Chicky uh, Pokey has said the book White Too Long was amazing and talks about these topics. I've actually read that book. Mm -hmm. uh, it is absolutely amazing. That's what Christianity is. It's a yeah. cafeteria style religion where you can mix and match, take what you want, leave what you want out of it. I can't take it seriously. It should have never existed. It's well, a mistake. I think the, 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 the taking what you want and not taking what you want is also, that is a big deal to me because I am into like apocryphal books, for example. You know, with mm. the conference of Nicaea and the year 325, they made a decision. Mm -hmm. They made decisions about which books made it into the Bible, which books didn't make it into the Bible. And mm -hmm. it is is interesting. It is like, you know, it is like like a lie by omission, right? It's as interesting what you leave out as to what you include. It means something like in psychology when we're testing the Rorschach test, we're looking for white space as well. What are you leaving out? What are you not saying? Or what are, what, what parts are you looking at? And so I'm always thinking that, and so, you know, you read some of the books, like the book of Ruth and um, um, Enoch, and you see all of these really fantastic, you know, like visions and, image, and images. And it's all, I'm always questioning, like, why did we decide or them? Why did they decide what they decided? And I have to believe that there's a component of patriarchy as well, because looking at like, um, for example, like um, I had to take a PhD level class in New Testament thought. So I have a, a Pauline perspective, but Paul was speaking to the church in Ephesus, right? And he was talking a lot mm -hmm. about relationships to them. He had even talked about how, like, is it better for a man not to marry? And people are always using that as an example of, like, Christian piety and holding on to your virginity because the church of Ephesus was really trying to figure out, like, do we want to, um, do we want to, you know, do everything with our bodies or do nothing with our bodies? Do we want to be super pious or not? But what's interesting was Ephesus was a town run by women. It was a town that worshipped a female deity, and they killed those women and they destroyed their deity and made women second-class citizens in the Bible. And the, and, and, and I'm not sure exactly which Christians did it. I'm not sure if it was a whole kind of overall cabal. I'm not sure if there was a particular leader in Rome or Greece or somewhere at the time that really enacted that. I'm not exactly positively sure, but it seemed to be a mass movement to eradicate paganism and paganism had inherent balance within it. To create, we all effing know you need a man and you need a woman to create a new life. And so many creation stories involve feminine deities. How do you create with no feminine deities? But the, the Bible has three male masculine deities that created the planet. And then they created male and female in their image, but then neither, none of them were female. Right. Even though the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. the name, the Holy Spirit is Rakodesh, uh, Roach Rakodesh. And 
that's a female name by some interpretation. Some people say it's just kind of like anecdotally female doesn't mean it's a female spirit, but it's just, it's just really got me feeling like, again, these people have never handed us anything that is to benefit us. Religion, I think is definitely for the point of control. It's important to control the people, um, especially if you're like a member of, you know, a leader in the government. And so they wanted to control women because they did understand the inherent power of women. Um, we literally give birth to the, to the next generation. We connect spirit to physics, to physical, we connect breath, right? The Bible talks a lot about God giving his breath to humans. Women give breath to humans. We are, we in our bodies connect spirit, the spirit realm, your spirit, because we all acknowledge we have a fucking spirit. Where the fuck did that get connected to you inside of your mother's womb? And I think that at a certain level, um, it was hard for some men at some point to process that reality that we all have different things that we do biologically and they had to control it. They had to tamp it down. And so I also feel a lot of direct interpretation of Christianity is inherently anti-feminine. It is anti-woman. And I'm a woman. I'm a woman with my own mind. I'm a woman with my own opinions. I'm a woman that happens to be quite intelligent. And I have never been comfortable with the idea of having to submit to someone because they were born with a dick. I just, I, it doesn't make sense. I respect, wow. I respect other women. I respect trans people. I respect, I respect everybody. But like, if you're an idiot, I'm not following you. <laughs> just because you have a dick, I'm not gonna be like, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So thank you. Thank y'all King. You're, you're doing it over here. Thank you. But I, when, when you, and, and so, because I know that you took a scholarly class with that. Is that the reason why there are no genealogy? In other words, genealogies don't start with women in the Bible because I believe it, what, what was it in the maybe 15th or 16th century that they found out that, oh, you know, um, you know, women have, uh, you know, reproductive organs because they thought that the entire being of a human being was inside of the sperma of a man. They believed that the woman's womb was just a barren field to just embrace the beautiful, glorious sperm of a man. And so that's why there's no genealogy that starts with women because they didn't think, they just thought women's womb was just a barren field. I'm gonna tell you again, I think that was some European nonsense, right? Mm. That was the, the homunculus, the idea of the tiny man that would come out of the man's dick and, yes. and travel into the woman's body and grow bigger inside of the woman's body. It, I think that was some European constructed psychosis they were drunk on ergot poisoning they were poisoned by their fucking wheat and they were just imagining all this nonsense and and projecting it through you know and projecting it through christianity and religion but ancient people knew what was up right mm -hmm. the ancient egyptians had pregnancy tests they had medicine they performed surgeries they literally took the organs out of the bodies they knew what the organs were like Africa, ancient Africa had knowledge. Like, I don't know all the, the, you know, I'm not one of those people that's like, ancient Africa knew everything. They had everything. They had technology. I don't know. I don't know what they had, but I know they knew things about our body that were really basic. And we lost a lot of that knowledge along the way. And everything began to get kind of wrapped up in this overly um, explained kind of like Christian magic, kind mm -hmm. of. And, and I think that's another one of my frustrations is I... Um, I think Christianity forced a lot of people to stop thinking and to stop researching. And it, it, it became the enemy of research and science. And I just don't think it had to. I, I think that it really could have been a friend to science. I think that they could have worked hand in hand, but instead, yeah, we have this idea that women are just what full of 
non full of full of insanity we're just full of we're just we're just these irrational crazy creatures that must be controlled by a man and and it was actually i was taking notes for this today and i was you know talking thinking about the role of women in the bible and how almost every woman in the bible was there for her sex for sex yes right? yes every single woman yes. including mary mary was there for her sex but her pure purity of sex every woman was there for her body um you know Queen Esther was there to fuck the king so she could save her Jewish people. Every, you know, basically every woman played that role. Not all of them. I think Dorcas did something else, but, you know, Jezebel played her role by being this bloodthirsty queen, you know, because any woman who has control over her own body from that perspective must be evil. Any woman that empowers herself sexually has to be evil. And, and going back to me being too black to be Christian, black women have always been given the, the, um, obviously the incorrect role, right? The assumption of, of this massive sexuality that we are these oversexed people. And really that was the perversion of the slave masters who wanted to believe that they were good Christian men that were just being tempted by these horrible Jezebels, right? It's the fault of women for making me attracted to you. And so we've never had the ability to be the idolized virginal woman, right? That's all mm -hmm. you've got in the Bible, the idolized virgin or the slut. There's nothing in between. And it's just so unrealistic and it creates so little space for women with, to live that I, I also had a hard time being a woman growing up in the church. It was just, it was difficult for me. Well, that's why I always say every, every man on earth should be a feminist. Thank you. I mean, like, why not? You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, I agree with everything what you just said. Um, and now, you mentioned something about, so Christianity is a patriarchal religion requiring from women submission in marriage. Yep. And so I've witnessed personally, right? Patriarchal hierarchies cultivate submission in young girls. So what effects do religion have? So basically the purity culture that is presented to young women, what psychological, psychological effects does that present in adulthood, when you're a full grown woman, does that affect your future relationships with men or, or in fact, or other women? Um, tell us a little bit about that. It creates shame. It creates guilt and sexual dysfunction. Um, when I was a kid at my church, they would get this fucking duct tape and they would stick it to your arm and then they would take it off and they would stick it to somebody else's arm and they would take it off and they would stick it to somebody else's arm. And they would say, is the tape still sticky? And they would say, this is what happens to your body when you have too much sex, is you become unsticky for your partner. You are used up, you are worn down. And I remember believing this shit, like, oh my God. Oh my what? God. But, right? But I was always a very sexual person, even as a child. I was very, I knew what was going on. I was into it. I was always like, what? Ooh, thank you. So, um, so <laughs> I, 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 had, I, I started to, you know, have to challenge that. But there becomes, you don't turn off years and years and years of programming just because you got married, right? You don't like have this wedding day, you jump the broom and all of a sudden, 25 years of being told that sex was dirty, 25 years of being told if you do too much, you're not going to get into heaven. If you do too much, your husband's not going to love you. You're not going to be able to enjoy sex. If you've had too many partners, I was, there was even some TikTok 
that I commented on, and I'm still fighting people in it, where I guess there was this woman who was saying that if you have over 10 partners, that the chance of divorce is higher. And I looked at the study and that wasn't super accurate. And mm. I'm like, because they're like, because you think back on your partners. First of all, what? I'm going to tell you this right now. If you are fucking your current partner and you are thinking about somebody else you fuck, they ain't fucking you right. End of story. You shouldn't be thinking about anything else. How can you, how do you have the space? <laughs> like, <laughs> you said, how do you have the space? How are you thinking that? Like, I don't even understand where those thoughts are coming from. So I, I, I think that this so it does create this sexual dysfunction where there might not be a lot of pleasure or joy or there and there might even be flashbacks to conversations about stds or the church's perspective because we in psychology we talk about what fires together wires together the more you think a thought the easier it is to think that thought in the future your mm. your neurons are like highways right they start off as like a path that you have to cut down all the trees. There's trees and, and brush everywhere. You have to cut it down. But then as you cut it down, you start walking down that path and the path gets wider. You keep walking down. Now you can bring a horse down. Now you can bring a cart down. Now you've paved it. Now you've got four lanes and it's a massive highway. And so if you've been given the super highway of sex is bad for you, you don't all of a sudden build the highway of sex is amazing. I'm good. I'm able to do anything I want with my partner. I'm able to be sexually expressive. Those two things are very difficult to have at the same time. And so I feel very blessed. Like my church was really conservative on it, but my family, my dad was a medical doctor. All my uncles and aunts are doctors. My mom is a psychologist as well. And so we got to talk, my, we talked about it. Like from the time I was a young kid, my dad would always say like, sex is, you can do anything you want as long as you have a, an adult consenting partner. That's it. All you've got to do, everyone's got to be an adult. And everyone's got to be consenting. So before I was 18, he was kind of like, okay, Allison, calm down. But I was, I would, I would, <laughs> I, would I would hook up with boys. I would do it. I would do whatever I was going to do. And I would actually tell my parents, we would talk about it every night. We would have like a little conversation at night about whatever happened in my day. And if I hooked up with a boy that day, I would tell them. And they weren't always like ecstatic about it, but they listened. They listened. Wow, and I'm sure it wasn't comfortable for them. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't comfortable. I'm sure it wasn't easy. And they would sometimes disagree and be like, stop doing it. What's wrong with you? But it was still a conversation. Like, the, you know, they didn't have to like it, but it was still a conversation. And I think that that is something that I really honor my parents for. Um, and that's not something that I ever felt like I could do at my church, right? I don't feel like I could be honest with my pastor about my sexuality and what I was doing. And I feel like, why not? Hmm. Like, why is that the reason... Was that the correlation between like why so many women in America, there's a high percentage of women in America that have never experienced an orgasm? I wonder what the connection to religiosity with that is, right? Especially like you said. I think it's like a lot. Hmm. I think it's a lot. And I also think America has just a bad relationship with sex. A horrible oh. relationship with sex. Um, I think there's this TED talk. I don't know if you've seen it where this person was saying that the language that we use when it comes to sex is very aggressive. And it tends to be sports-based or like violence-based. I hit it. I killed it. I beat that pussy up. I, I murdered it. You know, first base, mm. second base, third base. Um, it tends to be a very, and it, and it tends to create this idea of competition. So there's like a competitive component to sex instead of it being a collaborative event. And so, because when you're in competition, right, one person wins and one person loses. And I think we have this idea that men win sex and women lose sex. Women take sex, men give sex. And it also feeds into this idea of, um, of um, homophobia, 
this idea that if a man in his is is taking sex, he is somehow less than another man who is giving sex. So we have this idea that the giver is better than the taker for some reason. And but they were saying that the, a better a better metaphor for sex would be pizza. And talking about how you can have any kind of pizza. There's so many things you can do with pizza. You can have vegan crust. You can have a deep dish. You can have a shallow dish. You can have one that's that's gluten-free. You can have all these different types of sauces, a white cheese, a marinara, a spicy marinara, a pesto. You can have vegan cheese, mozzarella, five cheese, olives, onions, half and half. Like you can literally do anything. And why can't sex be this idea of everyone can get a little bit of what they want? And you know what? You don't even have to finish the pizza if you don't want to. You don't even have to come. That doesn't have to always be the end point. We have this idea that you have to arrive at some end point. And I think that we really need to reinvestigate sex because what ends up happening is men get their needs met in sex and women are kind of left going like, because our sexual process is a little different. It takes a little longer for the average woman to really reach orgasm, especially if we're going to have like a vaginal orgasm. And that could take up to 30 or 40 minutes. And we all know it does not take a man 30 or 40 minutes to come to release. And so we can both be at this point where now she still needs more, but he's like, I'm done. And I just think we need to really reinvestigate the way that we relate to one another, because these are also very beautiful spiritual moments. Lots of mm -hmm. religions use sex as a spiritual unifier, as a spiritual practice. Wow. That is, isn't that like in Hindi, like uh, kund Kundalina? I believe it's like that whole Kama Sutra. Kama Sutra, yeah. Yes. And so I, I, I think that we don't have to separate Christianity and religion from sex either, right? It's I obviously believe you should do it in a safe way and you should do it with somebody mm -hmm. that you trust and you feel safe with and you feel comfortable with and you guys have communicated and done what is important to do to make the both of you or more feel great. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I, I just I think that Christianity has um impacted some people, I'm sure not everyone, in a way that has made them uh, more uncomfortable with their own bodies and the way their bodies work. Heck of an explanation. Um, so Fannie Lou Hamer had once said, a black woman's body is never hers alone. And when we hear purity culture, it's usually through a Western European lens. So why is purity culture in black Christian America a topic of non-disclosure? but it rings loudly in white American culture. Because I mean, if you go on social media, there is a plethora of white women articulating the, the problematic woes of purity culture, but not necessarily black women, right? Mm -hmm. What is it about black culture that, that holds so tightly with not disclosing the purity culture that goes behind the veil? So you feel like that in black communities, we don't really talk as much about the purity culture component of it all. No. Because mm, I agree with that. Uh, I think that there is a purity culture within our, within our society, uh, the black community, which is why we have such negative ways of talking about women who have sex. You know, she's a doorknob. She's a thought. She's a hoe. She's, you know, all of this stuff. So definitely we talk about it. But I, I, I think that that quote really says it all, that a black woman's body has never been hers. And if we really talk about it, black men's bodies have never belonged to them. Black people have never owned our own bodies, whether it be through forced labor or forced sex, because there was a lot of rape on plantations, not just of women, but of men in front of their families. And so I think that we can't exclude the fact that our community has been literally damaged 
by whiteness and and how they projected Christianity to us, how they abused us with Christianity, how they would physically abuse us, sexually abuse us, and then pour sprinkle and then sprinkle Christianity on top of it. And so all of it kind of comes together to create what I do perceive as like a trauma bond with Christianity. We, we feel like it's the only place we could get respite from all the things that were attacking our bodies, both physically and sexually. And it's the, and, and so, but it's also the thing that creates the pain for us. And so I think that's why there is kind of this dichotomy in our community where we do have purity culture, but we don't always talk about it because actually we are less sexually active than white people. Yes. We, we statistically have less sex in marriages, not in marriages. We have less sex. We are more sexually repressed and we have less creative sex. We are more sexually repressed in other groups. But then socially, when you talk about black people, you hear people talk about us, you see us in movies and shows. We are the group of people that are always the most sexual in the movies or in the shows. We're the most mm -hmm. out of control, but it is just not a reflection of reality. And I think it is because of this trauma bond that we have. And can you explain like the, the, the particularities of what trauma bonding actually is? Absolutely. These people in these comments, y'all are y'all are coming with these truths. Y'all, they are they are coming with these truths down here. Um, so a trauma bond is a relationship that we form with somebody who is abusing us. Stockholm syndrome is another term for it. And what we see is when we're being abused, we release a lot of stress hormones like glucocorticoids and cortisol and things like mm -hmm. that that are telling us to get the heck out of here, right? Fight, run, do what you gotta do to protect yourself. But you're in a situation where you can't fight. You can't run. Maybe you're too young to get out of the house. Maybe you don't have enough money to be liberated from this partner of yours. Maybe you physically can't leave because you've been isolated. Or, you know, maybe you've just gotten to a point where you've genuinely up, given up. We call it learned helplessness. And so what happens is you begin to associate love and feelings of love with a lack of abuse. So your partner abuses you, you're upset, you're both fighting, it's a problem, the cortisol is flowing, but then you go a day or two, the person apologizes, you're not getting hit, you're not getting raped, you're not being assaulted, and your body begins to release oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone. So you begin to pair bonding and suffering. And so you begin, wow. and so it actually on a biological level creates this really tight connection with this person. And then on a social level, this person is now trusting you with their secret of abuse. They're trusting you not to say anything. So they have to give you gifts. They have to do little things to keep you kind of on their side when it looks like you're really going to go, which is why it gets dangerous when a person's actually going to leave because now you're leaving with the secret of the abuse. So the abuser is trusting you. And then you are also keeping this secret. And so this, on the social component, you're also united through the secret of abuse. Wow. Is, is, is that kind of like similar to um, Stockholm syndrome? Yep. Yep. It is the same thing. And Stockholm's kind of can happen a little quicker, right? Because the phenomenon that we were looking at was that hostage situation. So Stockholm right. is basically you saying like, you're probably going to kill me. So I'm just, I'm on your side now. <laughs> we're we're on the same side me and you you know but it's the same biological mechanism right that maybe they tortured you or they abused you and so now you've just come out and you're like you know what i just got to do what i can do to survive which is to align with my captor which is definitely what happened for black people in america we were trapped 
We had nowhere else to go. Our, our country was too far away for us to physically get to it at that time period. And we were surrounded by these white folks or we were at least surrounded by their white institutions and their government. We saw what would happen to other people that looked like us, that did not worship their God, that did not fall in line, that did not do what needed to happen. And we, we became ensnared in a trauma bond with America, a trauma bond with whiteness and a trauma bond with Christianity. Wow. And we're still here, which is why I, I do, I, I don't want to tell people like, well, don't be Christian. You can't be Christian. But I just think we have to reinvestigate it. We have to look at the trauma that we've experienced at the hands of Christian pastors and leaders for hundreds of years. Yeah. She's saying same for the, they're saying same for the Caribbean. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. All countries that have had any type of African diaspora have had the same type of trauma. And, and in connection with that, you had said something like very early on in our conversation about um, you're a person that likes to kind of excavate the origins of a thing, right? You want to go deeper and deeper and deeper. So in, in, your, in your professional clinical perspective, if I'm a person and I'm a Christian and I find out that Wait a minute. You know, let's say I thought that, oh, the Ten Commandments was just such a vital thing that God gave to Moses. But then I find out, oh, wait a minute. The Ten Commandments didn't originate mm -hmm. from the Baba. Or if I was like, oh, look what God did with the flood. But then when you look at the Enuma Elish, the Gilgamesh epic, flood stories have been around for thousands of years before Judaism or Christianity was even thought of. Mm -hmm. So then when you get to that level of knowledge, Mm -hmm. What then would keep an individual still bonded to Christianity? I think it's a few things. I think a lot of people haven't seen that knowledge, number one. I don't think they know about the principles of Ma'at. I don't think they know about the Code of Hammurabi. I don't think, and, and I, I think that we, we find ourselves hidden because also Christianity, and I'm not sure about y'all in the comments, please let me know. Um, please let me know, but... In my church, they did not encourage you to read books that weren't the Bible. You were not encouraged to read anything other than the Bible. Right. Number one, I think it's hidden. This knowledge is hidden from a lot of people. And two, this is because I I've asked my family members, uh, you know, because there's also this this um, phenomena of this co of, of humans have engaged in co-creation. So we're like two different science labs on different sides of the planet. The same year, we'll come up with the exact same study with the exact same finding, right? two different countries they'll come up with language at the same time in the same time period totally separately of one another and i i believe that there are some basic precepts that were that were created at the same time kind of co-created by different cultures that align with kind of these 10 commandment-esque ideals and to me that doesn't seem that i'm not, not surprised by that right i'm not like particularly blown away by the fact that humans realize killing each other sucks you know, it's like, like, how hard is that? Nobody likes getting robbed. Like, I don't care if you lived 10,000 years ago or two. Like, nobody wants to get robbed. Nobody wants to have their wife stolen or their husband stolen by somebody else. Like, that sucks. And so it's like, okay, so humans being humans don't like hurting things that hurt them? Like, no right. shit. You know, um, but the, the, the when I would talk to my family members about it, this is the answer they would give me is, Okay, buckle your seatbelts. The devil 
went back in time. He created these things beforehand so he could trick us into thinking that God wasn't real. Don't worry about me. I let myself out. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard a lot of the saints say that. I've I've never, I've never heard. Oh, I've heard a lot of the saints say it. It might just be an Adventist thing. Yeah, but like the devil went back in time to, or like, like the devil knew what was about to happen. And so he like created like the story of Gilgamesh to trick Christians into thinking that the Bible's 40 day plague came from Gilgamesh, right? He just made it up to confuse us. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, huh? They said, I've heard a lot of nonsense, but not this one. <laughs> Intertextual prophecy plot. said it sounds like an anime. It right. does. It no, sounds no, like an anime. It's a great plot. Christianity mm-hmm. didn't create kindness, caring for the poor, or love. Exactly. Like caring for other people is what humans do. We have frontal lobes that are geared towards connecting one another. So we want to touch each other. We want to look into each other's eyes. We want to caress. We want to spend time. We want to laugh. We want to eat. We've always wanted to do that. That's why we evolved into groups because we need each other. Because humans, look at this non-hairy skin. We can't survive in the wilderness. Not alone, right? Look at how soft we are. We don't have any 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 coating or any like like anything to keep us from getting pricked. Literally, you get cut in the wilderness, you get an infection, you're fucking dead. You know what I'm saying? We need each other to build homes and properties. And so we are geared towards being kind to one another. Even um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about it in his most recent book. Um, talking to strangers that there is what we call a default to truth and a default to trust we tend to trust one another we tend to believe that the person who is speaking to us is telling the truth so initially you believe the truth and then you're like wait this motherfucker lied to me right right so, right because we have to trust one another if humans truly didn't trust one another it would be chaos that means nobody is driving in the lines on the freeway Everybody is stealing from the store. Everybody is murdering everyone. People are raping people in the middle of the streets. Like that's what no trust looks like. And that is not a reality. It's not a reality. We trust each other. On, on the average day, even in the most dangerous of neighborhood, you can leave your house and go to your car and not mm-hmm. be murdered. Because in essence, most people are doing things that are pro-social. And when Christianity has never really been this religion of love that it says it is because let's be honest more people have died in the name of god and jesus than almost any other name and 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 i think christianity could be a religion of love i think it can it has all the makings of it if you just read the book and you do especially if you're a, a you know a christian that believes in like the new testament in particular the old testament definitely has its share fire and brimstone but taking away people's rights the bible does not explicitly talk about abortion right other than to teach you and tell you how to do it because in the times of the bible abortion was a mandatory thing for some in some circumstances if you were a nomadic group you could not have a child that was handicapped at that time i obviously do not align with that now by any stretch of the imagination i think you know we should protect all the babies but i am pro-choice I believe that women have the right to their own bodies and some of the cultures that we see that are from, that are directly connected to biblical times. Like for example, the Jewish community, they have a belief in their religion that you honor the mother over the child in her womb. 
Yes. If the child in the womb will kill the mother, they protect the mother. Because it actually just makes sense. How will you have more children if you allow the mother to die? And so I feel like we are moving away from what Christian principles were maybe at some point or what they could be. And so I definitely understand people's frustrations with feeling like Christianity is being attacked. But I think I need everyone to understand that Christianity is attacking us. And we are defending ourselves from Christianity. Christianity has been the aggressor pretending not to be. Like in Daniel, when it talks about Daniel and in Revelations, when it talks about the wolf that dresses as a lamb, that has been Christianity for a very long time. It is a predator. It, is, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. But it has been a predator that has been pretending to be a lamb. And if you don't want to be that, then keep your Christian friends and family accountable. Ask them to do things to actually make Christianity the religion that you say it is. That a religion that is sharing love, a religion that is sharing peace, a religion that is sharing joy. This is what you say you want to do. Do it. Do it and then people won't attack you anymore. Don't pretend like you're doing it like the evangelicals right now who are backing people who are genuinely antisocial, not focused on creating better betterment for people's lives, getting rid of Medicare, getting rid of social services, controlling the bodies of other people, historically controlling the bodies of other people through torture. You tell you like, come on, you get your folks in line and then we will not have any way. We will not need to defend ourselves against Christianity. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talked about abuse in the church. What, um, as a clinical psychologist, what are the signs for people that might be straddling the fence in their faith, in their church, and they really don't know how to recognize spiritual abuse? Mm -hmm. uh, can you provide some examples okay. of spiritual abuse in the church? Okay. Well, I can do that. And number one, so I am a life coach with a PhD in clinical psychology because I'm also a little too black for psychology right now, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll figure it out. That's a whole other conversation for another day. <laughs> so I'm a I'm a coach. I'm a mental health expert. I'm all that. But I I do work with a lot of people in the space of religious religious abuse. It never starts out that way though, right? It's not like people come to me like let's deal with my religious abuse. It's always something that people kind of come to an awareness of because I think that there's a sobering that has to happen because when you're in the religious bubble, all the things that are happening seem very normal. They seem very typical. They seem very acceptable. But then when you kind of take a break, which has happened with the pandemic, because we're not all going to church for a period because we had to stay home. So people had an opportunity to realize, wait, that didn't make any sense. And what you can actually see from people is a deep, um, a grief, obviously, because because religion isn't just like a relationship with a partner, right? Mm -hmm. It is a relationship with a partner that is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-loving, all-present, here for you and willing to take you into the eternal after. And so you starting to realize that the relationship that you have with this entity maybe wasn't founded in, 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 in good doctrine, or maybe wasn't founded in love or the people around you that are kind of the people bringing you this deity, bringing you this eternity, were not very loving, results in a lot of grief. It makes people very angry. So you see like an, an, a, an initial period of like, of rage, right? Because 
rage is anger that had nowhere to go right just this anger that you're just right. sitting with sitting with sitting with sitting with you don't know where to put it and then it just comes out as, as this rage and so you see um a lot of that people get mad like i wasted all my life doing this nonsense not living and then you and then you see um the like you almost see like the kubler ross like like stages of mourning right the kind of like the bargaining well maybe i can just be a christian on sunday and i can still like turn up on like friday like a saturday and i can like kind of like do this and that do this and that and um but i think mm. everyone has to walk that journey and when um what i've actually noticed from my practice and what i do with my clients is i get a lot of people that are coming to me during what philosophers call a dark night of the soul so for a lot of Christians who have had like a great relationship with God, there's a period of time where they just don't hear from him. His voice okay. is quiet. His, his perspectives, you just, you just don't get it. Like mother Teresa had a dark night of the soul. Um, a number of other religious, um, um, like muckety mucks had it. And I'm not anti-Christian. I am pro health. And so I will help clients through a dark night. And one of the ways I do that, I do encourage them to read, other books because I think that that can be stimulating. So I do ask them to, you know, expand. I ask them to meditate. I ask them to connect with themselves. I ask them to, you know, accept the reality that maybe right now they're not hearing the voice of God and maybe that's okay. Um, but the, the religious abuse, that's kind of like the run of the mill religious abuse. And then you get um, some of the more extreme religious abuse where there's like sexual abuse by a pastor or a clergy member where there is um, maybe even like physical abuse from a parent that was a pastor. That's also something that you see a lot where they'll be in this abusive home, but then they go to church on Saturday or Sunday and their parents all of a sudden up there acting like, you know, everything is okay. And one study was talking about how um, the relationship we have with God impacts the relationship we have with our father and the relationship we have with our father impacts the relationship we have with, with God. And so these earthly relationships really impact the way that we connect with this deity and so when we're getting abuse from a church member, it impacts the way we connect and it can create this fractured relationship. It can create an overly trusting relationship with the deity. It can create an overly submissive relationship with the deity. It can create that imbalance because the Bible is very clear that questioning God is okay. Right. Um, Elijah, when he was in the, in the wilderness hiding from um, Jezebel, challenged God and said, God, if you're really here for me, make the ground wet and the lambskin dry. And mm. then God did it. And the next day he said, oh, no, 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 no. Next, now switch it. Make the ground dry and the lambskin wet. And he did it. So it's okay to question. And so, but we'll get this idea that, oh, you can't question God. You can't do this. And that's when I start to notice there might be some religious abuse here when people begin to have these beliefs that are actually non-Bible. Because I tell people, I didn't leave the church because I didn't understand the Bible. I left it because I did. <laughs> right? through understanding what some of the meanings are. We will even sit down and like read the Hebrew. I like to help them through. I'm not anti, I'm just, I'm anti-pain. I'm anti-abuse. But what really gets me is the connection to eternity. It's the fear. It's the idea that if I don't agree with you, I'm gonna somehow burn in hell for eternity. I'm gonna be punished. Like even someone just told me, um, you better watch what you say, you know, God have mercy on you, right? So this idea that I can say something as an infinitesimally small creature to anger God in heaven, who is all knowing and all, and all this huge creature, make him so angry that he's going to somehow curse me, right? So it's this idea of attempting to control people with this, with eternity.
right? Of, oh, mm-hmm. if you don't fall in line, you know, guy in heaven is going to destroy you. And I think that that's inherently abusive. And so if I mm-hmm. think Christianity went away, I think there'd be less guilt. And I think that mm. there would be people who could accept who they are, flat-footed too, right? And saying, no, nah, I'm someone who just likes to do boom, boom, cat. And, but I still think, like we said, cre- there, there was a co-creation of ethics without religion, without Christianity. Okay. There was a co-creation of ethics. People don't like being murdered. People don't like being raped. People don't like being robbed. It, you don't have to be a Christian to not like people stealing your shit. But, and so I think there would still be a basic code of ethics because that's always going to exist. So I don't think it would just, you know, and I don't think Christians are evil, but I think that people who seek power by creating a all knowing imaginary deity to control what you do, I think that is inherently an evil act. But I think the average Christians are wonderful people who are just trying to live their best life and might inadvertently, someone might inadvertently hurt somebody by doing what they think is helpful, right? I think the person in the comment thought they were helping me by telling me to watch my mouth so I didn't get strike, struck down by the Lord. But they don't realize that that's wow. reducing my freedom. <laughs> that's reducing my freedom. And that's not necessarily a kind thing to do. And judgment is something the Bible talks very openly about not doing. So judging others is not biblical. Absolutely. Look at the plank in your own eye. Let everyone know where they can find you, your your, your oh, products listen. before you go. Yes, yes, up. do that. Hit me up on allisonhicks.com. I have a link in my link tree. So follow me, whatever. And all of my people, please follow Rob and um, hit up my link tree. I sell, you know, I have this card set that I am really into, which is all about, I designed it during the pandemic to help people find their purpose to reconnect with themselves and to live their most courageous life and i must say i think they're actually pretty stinking beautiful and like i'm just like really obsessed with them i think they are stunning but um there are lots of like little sexy ones but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so you can hit me up allisonix.com find my link tree my name is also spelled a-l-l-y-c-i-n okay all right. Well, thank you, everyone. My name is Robert Peoples. I'm with the Fitness Humanity. You can find me at affinishumanity.org. I'm here in Arizona. Um, and yes, this has been a great conversation. It needs to happen. Thanks, everyone, for joining in. You were great. Uh, man, the participation was on fire. Thank you. Thank you all for that. Yes, yes. And we'll do this again. Night, everyone. Thanks again, Dr. Ali. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.